Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, two stories by H. H. Monroe, better known as Saki. And now, a holiday task by H. H. Monroe. Can Elm Jordan entered the dining hall of the Golden Galleon Hotel in the full crush of the luncheon hour? Nearly every seat was occupied, and small additional tables had been brought in, where floor space permitted to accommodate latecomers, with the result that many of the tables were almost touching each other. Jerton was beckoned by a waiter to the only vacant table that was discernible, and took his seat with the uncomfortable and wholly groundless idea that nearly everyone in the room was staring at him. He was a youngish man of ordinary appearance, quiet of dress and unobtrusive of manner, and he could never wholly rid himself of the idea that a fierce light of public scrutiny beat on him as though he had been a notability or a supernut. After he had ordered his lunch, there came the unavoidable interval of waiting, with nothing to do but stare at the flower vase on his table, and to be stared at, in his imagination, by several flappers, some maturer beings of the same sex, and a satirical-looking Jew. In order to carry off the situation with some appearance of unconcern, he became spuriously interested in the contents of the flower vase. "'What's the name of these roses, do you know?' he asked the waiter. The waiter was ready at all times to conceal his ignorance concerning items of the wine list or menu. He was frankly ignorant as to the specific name of the roses. "'Amy Sylvester Partington,' said a voice at Jerton's elbow. The voice came from a pleasant-faced, well-dressed young woman who was sitting at a table that almost touched Jerton's. He thanked her hurriedly and nervously for the information, and made some inconsequent remark about the flowers. "'It is a curious thing,' said the young woman, "'that I should be able to tell you the name of those roses without an effort of memory, "'because if you were to ask me my name, I should be utterly unable to give it to you.' Jerton had not harbored the least intention of extending his thirst for name-labels to his neighbor. After her rather remarkable announcement, however, he was obliged to say something in the way of polite inquiry. "'Yes,' answered the lady. I suppose it is a case of partial loss of memory. I was in the train coming down here. My ticket told me that I had come from Victoria and was bound for this place. I had a couple of five-pound notes and a sovereign on me. No visiting cards or any other means of identification, and no idea as to who I am. I can only hazily recollect that I have a title. I am Lady Somebody. Beyond that, my mind is a blank. Hadn't you any luggage with you? asked Jerton. "'That is what I didn't know. "'I knew the name of this hotel "'and made up my mind to come here, "'and when the hotel porter who meets the trains "'asked if I had any luggage, "'I had to invent a dressing bag and dress basket. "'I could always pretend that they had gone astray. "'I gave him the name of Smith, "'and presently he emerged from a confused pile "'of luggage and passengers "'with a dressing bag and dress basket "'labeled Kestrel Smith. "'I had to take them. "'I don't see what else I could have done.' Jerton said nothing, but he rather wondered what the lawful owner of the baggage would do. Of course it was dreadful arriving at a strange hotel with the name of Kestrel Smith, but it would have been worse to have arrived without luggage. Anyhow, I hate causing trouble. Jerton had visions of harassed railway officials and distraught Kestrel Smiths, but he made no attempt to clothe his mental picture in words. The lady continued her story. Naturally, none of my keys would fit the things but I told an intelligent page-boy that I had lost my key-ring, and he had the locks forced in a twinkling. 
Rather too intelligent, that boy. He will probably end in Dartmoor. The Kestrel-Smith toilet tools aren't up to much, but they are better than nothing. If you feel sure that you have a title, said Jerton, why not get hold of a peerage and go right through with it? I tried that. I skimmed through the list of the House of Lourdes in Whitaker, but a mere printed string of names conveys awfully little to one, you know. If you were an army officer and had lost your identity, you might pour over the army list for months without finding out who you were. I'm going on another tack. I'm trying to find out by various little tests who I am not. That will narrow the range of uncertainty down a bit. You may have noticed, for instance, that I'm lunching principally off Lobster Newburg. Jerton had not ventured to notice anything of the sort. It's an extravagance, because it's one of the most expensive dishes on the menu. But at any rate, it proves that I'm not Lady Starping. She never touches shellfish. And poor Lady Brattleshrub has no digestion at all. If I am her, I shall certainly die in agony in the course of the afternoon, and the duty of finding out who I am will devolve upon the press and the police and those sort of people. I shall be past caring. Lady Newford doesn't know one rose from another, and she hates men, so she wouldn't have spoken to you in any case. And Lady Mouse Hilton flirts with every man she meets. I haven't flirted with you, have I? Jerton hastily gave the required assurance. "'Well, you see,' continued the lady, "'that knocks four off the list at once. "'It'll be a rather lengthy process "'bringing the list down to one,' said Jerton. "'Oh, but of course there are heaps of them "'that I couldn't possibly be. "'Women who've got grandchildren "'or sons old enough to have celebrated "'their coming of age. "'I've only got to consider the ones about my own age. "'I tell you how you might help me this afternoon, "'if you don't mind.' "'Go through any of the back numbers of Country Life "'and those sort of papers that you can find in the smoking room "'and see if you come across my portrait with Infant Son "'or anything of that sort. "'It won't take you ten minutes. "'I'll meet you in the lounge about tea-time. "'Thanks. Awfully.' "'And the fair unknown, "'having graciously pressed Jerton into the search for her lost identity, "'rose and left the room. "'As she passed the young man's table, "'she halted for a moment and whispered, "'Did you notice that I tipped the waiter a shilling?' We can cross Lady Allwhite off the list. She would have died rather than do that. At five o'clock, Jerton made his way to the hotel lounge. He had spent a diligent but fruitless quarter of an hour among the illustrated weeklies in the smoking room. His new acquaintance was seated at a small tea table, with a waiter hovering in attendance. China tea or Indian? she asked as Jerton came up. But China, please, and nothing to eat. Have you discovered anything? Only negative information. I'm not Lady Befnal. She disapproves dreadfully of any form of gambling. So when I recognized a well-known bookmaker in the hotel lobby, I went and put a tenor on an unnamed filly by William III out of Mitrovica for a 315 race. I suppose the fact of the animal being nameless was what attracted me. Did it win? asked Jerton. No, came in fourth. The most irritating thing a horse can do when you've backed it to win or place. Anyhow, I know now that I'm not Lady Befnal. It seems to me that the knowledge was rather dearly bought, commented Jerton. Well, yes, it has rather cleared me out, admitted the identity seeker. A florin is about all I've got left on me. The lobster Newberg made my lunch rather an expensive one, and of course I had to tip that boy for what he did to the Kestrel Smith locks. I've got rather a useful idea, though. I feel certain that I belong to the Pivot Club. I'll go back to town and ask the hall porter there if there are any letters for me. 
He knows all the members by sight, and if there are any letters or telephone messages waiting for me, of course that will solve the problem. If he says there aren't any, I shall say, You know who I am, don't you? So I'll find out anyway. The plan seemed a sound one. A difficulty in its execution suggested itself to Jerton. Of course, said the lady, when he hinted at the obstacle. There's my fare back to town, and my bill here and cabs and things. If you'll lend me three pounds, that ought to see me through comfortably. Thanks ever so. Then there is the question of that luggage. I don't want to be saddled with that for the rest of my life. I'll have it brought down to the hall, and you can pretend to mount guard over it while I'm writing a letter. Then I shall just slip away to the station, and you can wander off to the smoking room, and they can do what they like with the things. They'll advertise them after a bit, and the owner can claim them. Jordan acquiesced in the maneuver, and duly mounted guard over the luggage while its temporary owner slipped unobtrusively out of the hotel. Her departure was not, however, altogether unnoticed. Two gentlemen were strolling past Jerton, and one of them remarked to the other, "'Did you see that tall young woman in grey who went out just now? "'She is the lady—' "'His promenade carried him out of earshot at the critical moment "'when he was about to disclose the elusive identity. "'The lady who?' "'Jerton could scarcely run after a total stranger, "'break into his conversation, and ask him for information concerning a chance passerby. "'Besides, it was desirable that he should keep up the appearance of looking after the luggage.' In a minute or two, however, the important personage, the man who knew, came strolling back alone. Jerton summoned up all his courage and waylaid him. "'I think I heard you say you knew the lady who went out of the hotel a few minutes ago, a tall lady, dressed in grey. Excuse me for asking if you could tell me her name. I've been talking to her for half an hour. She, er, knows all my people and seems to know me, so I suppose I've met her somewhere before, but I'm blessed if I can put a name to her.' "'Could you?' Uh, "'Certainly. She's a Mrs. Stroop.' "'Mrs?' queried Jerton. "'Yes. She's the lady champion at golf in my part of the world. An awful good sort, and goes about a good deal in society. But she has an awkward habit of losing her memory every now and then, and gets into all sorts of fixes. She's furious, too, if you make any allusion to it afterwards. Good day, sir.' The stranger passed on his way and before Jerton had had time to assimilate his information, he found his whole attention centered on an angry-looking lady who was making loud and fretful-seeming inquiries of the hotel clerks. "'Has any luggage been brought here from the station by mistake? A dress-basket and dressing-case with the name Kestrel Smith? It can't be traced anywhere. I saw it put into Victoria. That I'll swear. Well, what? there's my luggage, and the locks have been tampered with.' Jerton heard no more. He fled down to the Turkish bath and stayed there for hours. We'll return with Story 2, A Defensive Diamond, right after these sponsor messages. And now, A Defensive Diamond by Saki. Treadleford sat in an easeful armchair in front of a slumberous fire with a volume of verse in his hand and the comfortable consciousness that outside the club windows the rain was dripping and pattering with persistent purpose. A chill, wet October afternoon was merging into a bleak, wet October evening, and the club smoking room seemed warmer and cozier by contrast. It was an afternoon on which to be wafted away from one's climactic surroundings, and the golden journey to Samarkand 
promised to bear Treadleford well and bravely into other lands and under other skies. He had already migrated from London the Rainswept to Baghdad the Beautiful, and stood by the sun gate in the olden time, when an icy breath of imminent annoyance seemed to creep between the book and himself. Amblecope, the man with the restless, prominent eyes and the mouth ready mobilized for conversational openings, had planted himself in a neighboring armchair. For a twelve-month and some odd weeks, Treadleford had skillfully avoided making the acquaintance of his voluble fellow clubman. He had marvelously escaped from the infliction of his relentless record of tedious personal achievements, or alleged personal achievements, on golf links, turf, and gaming table, by flood and field and covert side. Now Treadleford's season of immunity was coming to an end. There was no escape. In another moment he would be numbered among those who knew Amblecope to speak to, or rather, to suffer being spoken to. The intruder was armed with a copy of Country Life, not for purposes of reading, but as an aid to conversational icebreaking. "'Rather a good portrait of Thrusselwing,' he remarked explosively, turning his large challenging eyes on Treadleford. "'Somehow it reminds me very much of Yellowstep, who was supposed to be such a good thing for the Grand Prix in 1903. Curious race that was. I suppose I've seen every race for the Grand Prix for the last—' "'Be kind enough never to mention the Grand Prix in my hearing, please,' said Treadleford desperately. "'It awakens acutely distressing memories. I can't explain why without going into a long and complicated story.' "'Oh, oh, certainly, certainly,' said Amblecope hastily. Long and complicated stories that were not told by himself were abominable in his eyes. He turned the pages of country life and became spuriously interested in the picture of a Mongolian pheasant. "'Not a bad representation of the Mongolian variety,' he exclaimed, holding it up for his neighbor's inspection. "'They do very well in some covers. They take some stopping, too, once they're fairly on the wing. I suppose the biggest bag I ever made in two successive days—my aunt!' "'who owns the greater part of Lincolnshire,' "'broke in Treadleford, with dramatic abruptness, "'possesses perhaps the most remarkable record "'in the way of a pheasant bag that has ever been achieved. "'She is seventy-five and can't hit a thing, "'but she always goes out with the guns. "'When I say she can't hit a thing, "'I don't mean to say that she doesn't occasionally "'endanger the lives of her fellow guns, "'because that wouldn't be true. "'In fact, the chief government whip "'won't allow ministerial MPs to go out with her. "'We don't want to incur by-elections needlessly,' he quite reasonably observed. "'Well, the other day she winged a pheasant and brought it to earth with a feather or two knocked out of it, and my aunt saw herself in danger of being done out of about the only bird she'd hit during the present rain. Of course, she wasn't going to stand that. She followed it through bracken and brushwood, and when it took to the open country and started across a plowed field, she jumped onto the shooting pony and went after it. The chase was a long one, and when my aunt at last ran the bird to a standstill, she was nearer home than she was to the shooting party. She had left that some five miles behind her. "'Rather a long run for a wounded pheasant,' snapped Amblecope. "'Ah, the story rests on my aunt's authority,' said Treadleford coldly. "'And she is local vice-president of the Young Women's Christian Association. She trotted three miles or so to her home.' It was not until the middle of the afternoon that it was discovered that the lunch for the entire shooting party was in a pannier attached to the pony's saddle. Anyway, she got her bird. Some birds, of course, take a lot of killing, said Amblecope. So do some fish. 
I remember once I was fishing in the X, lovely trout stream, lots of fish, though they don't run to any great size. One of them did, announced Treadleford with emphasis. My uncle, the Bishop of South Moulton, came across a giant trout in a pool just off the main stream of the X near Ugworthy. He tried it with every kind of flying worm every day for three weeks without an atom of success, and then fate intervened on his behalf. There was a low stone bridge just over this pool, and on the last day of his fishing holiday, a motor van ran violently into the parapet and turned completely over. No one was hurt, but part of the parapet was knocked away, and the entire load that the van was carrying was pitched over and fell a little way into the pool. In a couple of minutes, the giant trout was flapping and twisting on bare mud at the bottom of a waterless pool, and my uncle was able to walk down to him and fold him to his breast. The van load consisted of blotting paper, and every drop of water in that pool had been sucked up into the mass of spilt cargo. There was silence for nearly half a minute in the smoking room, and Treadleford began to let his mind steal back towards the golden road that led to Samarkand. Amblecope, however, rallied and remarked in a rather tired and dispirited voice, "'Talking of motor accidents, the narrowest squeak I ever had was the other day, motoring with old Tommy Yarby in North Wales.' "'Awfully good sort, old Jarby, though thorough, a thorough good sportsman, and the best—' "'It was in North Wales,' said Treadleford, "'that my sister met with her sensational carriage accident last year. "'She was on her way to a garden party at Lady Deneva's, "'about the only garden party that ever comes to pass in these parts in the course of the year, "'and therefore a thing that she would have been very sorry to miss. "'She was driving a young horse that she'd only bought a week or two previously.' "'warranted to be perfectly steady with motor traffic, "'bicycles, and other common objects of the roadside. "'The animal lived up to its reputation "'and passed the most explosive of motorbikes "'with an indifference that almost amounted to apathy. "'However, I suppose we all draw the line somewhere, "'and this particular cob drew it at traveling wild beast shows. "'Of course, my sister didn't know that, "'but she knew it very distinctly when she turned a sharp corner "'and found herself in a mixed company of camels "'piebald horses and canary-colored vans. "'The dog-cart was overturned in a ditch "'and kicked to splinters, "'and the cob went home across country. "'Neither my sister nor the groom was hurt, "'but the problem of how to get to the Neneva garden party, "'some three miles distant, "'seemed rather difficult to solve. "'Once there, of course, "'my sister would easily find someone to drive her home. "'I suppose you wouldn't care for the loan "'of a couple of my camels?' "'The showman suggested, in humorous sympathy. "'I would,' said my sister, who had ridden camel back in Egypt, and she overruled the objections of the groom, who hadn't. She picked out two of the most presentable-looking of the beasts and had them dusted and made as tidy as was possible at a short notice, and set out for the Neneva mansion. You may imagine the sensation that her small but imposing caravan created when she arrived at the hall door. The entire garden party flocked up to gape. My sister was rather glad to slip down from her camel, and the groom was thankful to scramble down from his. Then young Billy Dalton of the Dragoon Guards, who has been a lot at Aden and thinks he knows camel language backwards, thought he would show off by making the beasts kneel down in orthodox fashion. Unfortunately, camel words of command are not the same all the world over. These were magnificent Turkestan camels, accustomed to stride up the stony terraces of mountain passes, and when Dalton shouted at them, they went side by side up the front steps into the entrance hall and up the grand staircase. The German governess met them just at the turn of the corridor. The Nenevas nursed her with devoted attention for weeks, 
and when I last heard from them she was well enough to go about her duties again. But the doctor says she will always suffer from Hagenback heart. Amblecope got up from his chair and moved to another part of the room. Treadleford reopened his book and betook himself once more across the dragon green, the luminous, the dark, the serpent-haunted sea. For a blessed half-hour he disported himself in imagination by the gay Aleppo gate and listened to the bird-voiced singing man. Then the world of today called him back. A page summoned him to speak with a friend on the telephone. As Treadleford was about to pass out of the room, he encountered Amblecope, also passing out, on his way to the billiard room, where, perchance, some luckless white might be secured and held fast to listen to the number of his attendances at the Grand Prix, with subsequent remarks on Newmarket and the Cambridgeshire. Amblecope made as if to pass out first, but a newborn pride was surging in Treadleford's breast, and he waved him back. "'I believe I take precedence,' he said coldly. "'You are merely the club bore. I am the club liar.'" Thanks for joining us for our two short stories from Saki. If you enjoy our stories here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and you're an Apple device user, please do take a moment and leave us a review. If you're not sure how to do it, just Google how to leave a review at Apple, and you'll find the answer. It takes a few minutes, but it's very, very much appreciated by us, as it helps new people find our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.